Hello, readers. David Sachs is a writer, reporter, speaker, and best-selling author of four books, one of which, Save the Deli, won him a James Beard Award. His fifth book, out now, is called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. David, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Trey, I am great. Good to hear. So what was your goal with The Future is Analog? Interesting. No one's ever asked me what my goal was, which is really funny as a writer, because um, I think the goal is often just to like keep writing. It's like, <laughs> what can I do with another book? And there was an element of that, right? Is you know, I had all these ideas for the books. You know, my 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 last book came out in like April of 2020, so it was like, all right, what am I going to do now? What can I do when I can't travel anywhere or do anything? And at the same time, you know, my entire life is like living through this thing which was sort of the early pandemic where everything that I've written about in the past, uh, in the previous book, The Revenge of Analog, is being questioned, right? Um, and so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing all these interviews, um, really with media, podcasts, newspapers all over the world who were asking what the future of analog was now that everything was online, school, work, you know, church, commerce, whatever. And the goal of the book was really to answer that question. Like, what is the future of analog? Um, and what does it mean to think about the future in a way that's different? Because for the entirety of my life, and I'm sure your life, you look like a similar age to me, although much better skin and hair. Um, <laughs> something drinking is working well. We, we are, by the way. We're both in, the mid, in our mid-40s. Mid-40s. Middle-aged. Nothing but death from here on in. Oof. Um, you can say it about anyone in life, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, for the entirety of our lives, right? The future was always going to be digital. Transporters and flying cars and electric cars and jumpsuits and video phones and all these things, like everything was going to be in the future, digital. And, you know, over the past 20 odd years of the sort of great tech boom that was sort of the, the net boom, the web 1.0 boom, you know, which begat the social media boom, which begat the smartphone boom, which begat whatever the hell we're in now. Um, that narrative really dominated the way people talked about the future and everything from government and academia to popular culture and business. Um, and, and really was sort of accepted as common knowledge that, you know, oh, well, you know, in the future, everyone's going to be going to school online. In the future, you know, all work's going to be remote. And then all of a sudden we were thrust into that. And, we haven't really done a reckoning of it, uh, of what that looked like, what that meant, whether that worked for us or whether it didn't, and if not, why? And what does that point to for our collective future if um, digital isn't going to be the future of everything? Then what does it say about the future of, of analog, of the non-digital spaces and relationships and aspects of our life that we had to live without for you know months or even years? Um, and, and what do we learn from that? So this book breaks that down into seven different categories with each category being represented by a different day of the week. For instance, chapter one is Monday, work. Now, I come at this particular area from a different vantage point because I was working in radio at the time and my responsibilities with this radio station, even though I was the host of a show at that moment, 
Uh, my wherewithal and know-how behind the scenes required me to still go into work every day. I literally did not miss a day of going into work wow. when the pandemic started. But that wasn't the case for most people. And uh, plenty of us shudder at the thought of another Zoom meeting or conference call. Or God forbid, I'm not even kidding you, David. We did a Zoom Christmas party, which was somehow worse than the usual office Christmas party. But we gained a, uh, a good sense of uh, just what digital work was and what it isn't. And so I guess my question for you is why? Make sure to wear your funny sweaters, Trey. <laughs> that was a thing. Oh, that God was a thing, Lord. David. But why is being physically at an office and around coworkers so much better for employees morale and productivity than the work from home model? I could cite studies. I could cite theories and different reasons uh we can get into you know haptic learning and how people gather information not just from facts and figures and words and text that can be sent to you but through their environment through the way they walk through a space through social conversations and all of that is summed up in the fact that we are physical beings right who exist in a physical world and we forgot that we assume that if we could take the tasks that we do, you are the guy who is on air on the radio station. You're the guy that puts the um, technology that gets it through the airwaves out to the different listeners of KQED, you know, Austin or whatever. And you're the person who does ads and you're the person who does marketing or whatever. And you can actually all do all the things you do from your home and screen. So you don't need to go anywhere. Yes, that worked. And for most part, like it was, was this miraculous thing, right? That most businesses were just like, oh my God, oh my God, flip a switch. Oh, okay. But, you know, like it's amazing that like 90% of businesses just didn't like stop working. Or, you know, it was like things just kept going. Like every radio station just kept playing its programs. Every store was selling its stuff. Like, you know, everything got there on time and not just the essential things like groceries, but like Zara, you know, like random stupid crap we didn't need. Um, no offense to Zara. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and yet it wasn't the same thing, right? That we talked about productivity and people were like, well, look, people are working as many hours before. It's like, well, yeah, but the, the, the quality of the work is diminished in many cases and, and, and the relationships are fraying. And what do we hear? What was the word that people used the most to describe work during that time? Burnout, burnout. People are burning out, they're burning out, they're frying. Why? Because they were just staring in their screens all day for eight hours a day doing some low-fi version of the thing that they were once doing out in the world. I'll give you a great example. My next-door neighbor, Lauren, love her. She's brilliant. She works as an investment something um, for the Canadian pension plan. So like one of those huge, huge pension plans with billions and billions of dollars under management. And her job is to go around the world and deal with... Um, their investments in different venture capital funds and other funds or whatever. Like we're talking Monday, London, Wednesday, Santiago, Thursday, you're flying to Tokyo and then back home, you know, for a night, change your clothes, get back on the road. Cause you're going to like Harris and San Francisco and then back to New York and whatever. Right. And all of a sudden it's like, Hey, you don't have to go anywhere. You know, leave your suitcase. Like you're good. Keep your yoga pants on. You can work at home. But now her days were eight 30 till six 30 doing this in front of a screen 
back to back to back to back to back to back to back video meetings, maybe like a 20 minute break to go like run downstairs to the kitchen and I don't know, eat last night's leftovers for running back up for the other thing. No chit chat with someone, no walking over to a colleague and ask them a quick question and finding out about their kids or having them ask her about, you know, what she was doing for the holidays. No stupid holiday party, which kind of sucked, but was kind of fun and memorable, right? No after work drink, no lunch with anyone. None of the fun of the travel that was exhausting and brutal, but also like pretty cool uh, that she got to go to all these places and build relationships there. None of the other things that wrapped itself around the work, just the work, just the task and devoid of all context, devoid of all physical context, devoid of all social context. Um, and that was exhausting. And that was in many cases, the burnout that, most people experienced was that realizing that work decoupled from the office, the work environment, colleagues, the social interactions, the physical spaces was just the work. My daughter put it best when we were talking about homeschool. I was like, well, you still get to see your friend. She's like, no, 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 that's not real. It's, it's just homework. Like it was like just the homework of life, which sucked. Yes, it did. And <laughs> I, I would, I would also suggest as somebody again, who, who, uh, didn't really miss a beat, although I was uh, going to much uh, emptier offices for those first several months, is that there's a sort of routine that exists too, that at least for me personally, is an enjoyable part of the day. And when you're stuck in a confined space, you could live in a mansion for all I care. But if you're stuck in that same space 24 seven, you're going to start to get cabin fever, you're going to start to feel a little bit like Jack in the Shining. Yeah, and exactly when you no add work and no, you know, inter-office water cooler chatter makes uh, Trey a doll boy. <laughs> That's exactly right. Axe right through that door behind you. There and look, there's a, a certain faction of people whose productivity probably didn't take much of a hit and didn't it have may have that, gone up. Didn't have that big of an issue with the work from home bit and were upset when they were required to start going into the office a whole lot more. There's a lot of people like that. But I'm going to be honest with you, David. A lot of those people are folks who aren't all that productive in their jobs to begin with. And so getting to sit at home and stare at a computer screen and talk about how you feel about the, the current situation and lamenting why your situation sucks as bad or worse than your other coworker who's probably in a pretty similar position in terms of how little they actually do for the job. Like for those of us who, who have work to get done and who understand the value of actually being in person to talk about things that are coming up or to try and trouble th troubleshoot through issues, it was just that much more of a time waste. Well, and I think the other thing is, you know, like there are a lot of people who really it was, it was very stressful to go into the office and the fear of it is the big thing. And they might have social anxiety, but the cure for social anxiety in a workplace or the cure for someone feeling left out in a workplace or the cure for the fact or the solution for the fact that someone might've felt ill-valued in a physical workplace and it was easier online isn't to remove that person from the physical workplace. It's to work harder to integrate them into it. It's mm -hmm. to work harder to make them feel comfortable or make it feel equitable or, or make their voice feel heard or make it a more comforting, welcoming environment for someone who, I don't know, a young mother, for example, um, who has to pop out and breastfeed. Like we talk about the future work now. It's not a question of, are we going back five days a week or four days a week? Is it alternate Thursdays or alternate Wednesdays or whatever? You know, how big the office should be? It's, we, we need to actually question the very notion of productivity. 
because that's what this called into the fact, like it stripped work down just to the tasks. And we saw that that was insufficient, but we were still measuring people's productivity and work and rewarding it in a very like industrial era way, which is like, well, you clocked in for eight hours, Trey on zoom, therefore we'll pay you for eight hours. Right. There are companies out there now that are using keyboard tracking software and other like psychotic Xi Jinping level, you know, surveillance tech to see how much or how productive people are working, right? When really we need to reorient our economy, which is an economy that's largely based on, you know, knowledge. And I'm not talking about truck drivers or, you know, people who work in restaurants or other people whose, whose physical presence is, you know, the, the, the productivity that we're talking about. I'm talking about someone who works in like an ad agency. It's like, who cares if they get the job done in four hours or eight hours? What does it matter, right? If the job gets done to the standard and satisfaction, they're able to work with everyone else. If they can get it done in faster time, great. But like, why are we still thinking of things in such a linear way? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, technology in the workplace has obviously improved a lot over the last few decades. But those who study these things say that productivity has stalled during that same time. Why is that? For that very reason, right? We're we're measuring productivity in what? It's like, well, how many hours did people work? Um, you know, how many tasks did they do in those hours? But that's it's an insufficient measure of productivity for jobs and tasks that are knowledge and creativity based, right? Who cares how long I take to write a book? You know, if I take a year to write this book or I take 18 months to write this book, you know, if you're if you're the publisher, you don't really care that much. If you're the bookseller, as long as it makes the thing you don't care. If you're the reader, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the economics of it are the same. Um, but in other industries, we're, we're, we don't think of it in that way. And, um, and again, it's this mismatch between you know, the, the model we have of what work is and what, what it evolves to. But when the conversation is just like, well, are, should we be in the office or not? What's the future of work? We're, we're missing out on that, which is a far more important thing to talk about. Okay, so let's go there then. Many are considering better ways to organize in-person work for the future. What exactly is the craft movement? Uh, yeah, well, the craft movement is a, a broad term. There was a paper written um, about a year and a half ago by a Dutch academic and a bunch of colleagues, um, mostly in the UK. And it focused on you know what once was the sort of main way to work in, in Europe, right? Medieval Europe, just guilds of craftspeople, like people who were skilled at a certain trade, maybe it was making shoes, maybe it was stained glass windows, whatever you want to call it, or, or brewing beer. Um, and, and they had, you know, a way that they worked and it was artisanal in many ways, which was individualistic to what that person felt was being productive. Uh, and they were allowed to sort of work in their way and rewarded for the work that they were they did by the products they sold or whatever. And so what the paper argued is that as digital technology advances, as we're going to see new iterations of artificial intelligence and big data and robotics and God only knows what else is coming down the line, right? But new sort of things, they're going to challenge the traditional ways of work. The thing we have to do is adapt a craft mindset around work. And that is allowing human beings more flexibility to work as human beings and under the conditions that they deem sufficient as humans to get the job done in the best way possible. 
the opposite of sort of an AI job, right? Or a computerized job where it's like, these are your tasks and this is how you do them. And this is your output. And here's how it will be done. And here's how you'll be rewarded. Instead saying, this is what we need done. And people saying, okay, great. I'm going to go do it. You're going to trust me to do that. They likened it in the paper to the craft beer movement of which I imagine, you know, because you're in a city like Austin, Texas, and it's 2022, right? There's a craft, you know, like seven people in, uh, you know, in a hut in Alaska and one of them is going to start a craft brewery. But 40 years ago was like, there weren't craft breweries 50 years ago. It was Heineken and Coors and Molson and these other sort of big ones, Sapporo right now, which is like one company entirely. And they made, you know, a mass produced industrial model of beer. And then the people said, hey, there's room in the market for these other things. And actually like this doesn't mean it's taste. And we're going to make it in a way that's very different from these companies, both in terms of its flavor, but also in terms of the workplace we're going to build, the way we reward people, you know, everybody grow a beard, um, everybody wear your trucker hats, whatever, right? And craft has become the fastest growing part of the beer business. And there's room for both. And so what they're saying is in the future of work, you're going to have your tasks that are going to be easily automated, computerized, streamlined, digitized, right? Uh, if you're doing sort of back-end bookkeeping for something, you know, you probably don't need to go into the office every day and your computers are going to help you do a bunch of it or put you out of work one way or another, right? But there are going to be other things that you're going to want people to be their most human at, to be their most creative at, um, and not automate it because that that creativity, that humanity at the core, that sort of analog essence of work is the secret sauce, the competitive advantage. Uh, you don't want to give that away. Does that typically involve collaboration then? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's, you know, if anybody's doing anything completely in isolation, um, yeah, it doesn't matter where they work. Look, I'm a writer. I've worked from home by myself, for myself, for my entire career of the past 20 years. You know, you know when they were like, oh, everybody, you know, you're going to go work from home and people are on the, uh, the internet or on TV and they're like, you know, the first thing you're going to do is wake up in the morning and like take a shower and put your suit on. You know, that's the way to keep your mind in the workspace. I was like, no, no, no. You need some sweatpants and some slippers. <laughs> you need some slippers. You need some sweatpants. You need a real desk. I think it's again, up to that individual, right? What works for you? What gets you to work in a way that's better? Um, but it's the hard part is going to be allowing that freedom and autonomy to experiment and see what actually makes sense and trusting people to do things, you know, in a way that's very different from how we've done it before, which is like, you must be here and sit here and do this. And, and your presence is what. Matters. Chapter two is Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday covers school. And David, we could probably spend the entire hour talking about uh, the failings of schools during the pandemic, but we won't. We'll talk a little bit about what the thought was with what the digitization of education was supposed to look like versus what actually played out over the first year, year and a half of the pandemic. So there were digitized models of schools going back even a couple of years before the pandemic and it was very idealistic so what was the common belief that schools would become as you integrated more and more technology into the education system this is a philosophy that goes first of all has always been wrong and it goes back you know more than a century thomas edison when he invented film and you know radio um preached about how we wouldn't need schools 
in the future because students will sit and listen to the world's best lectures delivered on, you know, phonograph or radio or on film strip, right? You know, you remember growing up, it was all about, you know, Encarta CD-ROMs and, uh, and you know, oh, you know, CD-ROMs are going to replace teachers, right? Um, and, and until, you know, the, the sort of digitized um, uh, version of this, so the One Laptop Per Child initiative, um, MIT and Nicholas Negroponte, which received tons, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding. And it was like, we're going to make these hand crank laptops that we can literally drop from planes to poor kids in Africa. Never Ethiopia, never Kenya, never like Sudan, just Africa, like Africa, land of savages. Um, we're going to like give it to them and then they'll just like turn it on. And, you know, a teacher somewhere in America is just going to like teach these, you know, kids how to math or whatever. And, uh, and I guess the biggest sort of movement was, um, uh, the former Google um, uh, inventor, Sebastian Thurn, had his MOOC movement, massive open online course, which is like, we're going to film a professor teaching a course in whatever, his was artificial intelligence, and show it to everyone around the world. It's going to be open, or you can sign up or pay. And every university is going to do this, and eventually every school. And like, we won't need classrooms anymore because one professor can teach, you know, 30,000 people at a time, and everyone's going to get so much smarter. And all these initiatives failed. Some of them spectacularly, one laptop or child, others pretty quickly. The MOOC movement, when they actually moved it out to real universities and courses, like 90% of people never finished it. It's like a 10% completion rate. And I think that was like the best case scenario. And so what, what was the promise, right? The promise was that school and the misunderstanding um, is that school is a place where children or students, if they're in university or whatever, Go to learn information. One plus one equals two. You know, the quick cat jumped over the brown fox or whatever, right? Math, grammar, science, phys ed, sex ed, you name it, right? Everything you learn in school. So why don't we just take that information, which is in these big old buildings that are really expensive to upkeep, that have a lot of staff. We have to pay these teachers. They're unionized. And I'm saying this to my kids' teachers. Schools were on strike today, right? Um, we have to negotiate contracts with them. It's so expensive. It's such a burden. It's so hard to get kids there. You know, we're always having to change enrollment. Like what if we could just do away with the physicality of this crap and just give people the information in a format that they already like, Hey, kids love video games. We'll make it a video game. Hmm. So here we were 2020, right? Every student in the world does online school, kindergarten, high school, university, graduate studies, right? The poorest schools in the poorest countries, the wealthiest schools in the wealthiest countries. And all of it is a dismal disappointment and in many cases, an outright failure. Why? Because school is not just a freaking building where you go to get some information and facts and figures thrown at you. It is an environment, a complete human environment built around relationships. And the relationships between the student and the teacher, between the teacher and their colleagues, between the students and each other, between that school and its community, that is the relationship that allows for trust and learning and human growth. And only that is the condition that allows for people to learn that one plus one equals two, right? When you think back to your own schooling, all those years in Texas, I guess, mm -hmm. you're up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Texas school system, right? Um, do you think, and think of the best teachers you had and think of the worst teachers you had. How much of the best 
teacher you had and the worst teacher you had had to do with the subject they were teaching? It was very rarely about that. It had more to do with the uh, the personality of the teacher and their ability to connect with the class on the whole, but also individuals within the class too. And how much did those teachers that cared, the ones that connected with you, make a difference in what you learned in their classes? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I hadn't thought about it like that before. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was definitely... There were definitely classes that it did help me learn, but there were classes that I quite honestly don't remember what the person was teaching. What stands out is how much I enjoyed that teacher. Right. And that built into that thing. Think of college or university. Did you go to college or university? Yes. Okay. You know, when you think back on those four years or five, if you're really into the hacky sack, you know. Six, seven. Six, medical school, obviously. Yeah. Peter, yeah, petered out at eight. Yeah, the uh, the the medical school of radio. Yes, there you go. They ran out of bonds at the local dispenser. <laughs> Something like um, that. You know, what do you think about at that time? Like when you, when you remember it, what do you remember? I remember some of the things I learned. You know, one history professor talking about Nixon in a particularly animated way. Hmm. Um, you know, a paper I wrote on the Simpsons or some crap. But I remember my friends and my relationships and the conversations we had and life on campus and life off campus and, you know, parties and going skiing on Fridays with my friend Arif, like all of that built itself around the experience. And, you know, people are like, well, what did you learn in a liberal arts degree? It's like you learn to be a critically thinking human. And that doesn't just happen with the information that's given to you and the three papers you write a semester. It happens in that entire environment. So what happened? We removed that entire environment from education and students everywhere just flounder. Um, academically, of course, but socially as well. Kids were bouncing off the walls. Children were depressed. University students, I, I mentor at my old university with students and they were, I, I would remember speaking to them maybe at their parents' houses and just be like, so depressed and unmotivated. And and so what did it, what did it teach us? Is that if we're planning a future where education is something that's being delivered without school, then already we're failing. That we're, we're setting ourselves up for a guaranteed failure because education is not just about delivering facts and figures in the most efficient way possible. That's an encyclopedia or Wikipedia or you know whatever you want to call it, right? If it was that, we would have replaced schools with encyclopedias 150, 200 years ago. So you spoke with Andrea Schleicher, who works for the OECD, uh, OECD in Paris. What did she mean when she told you that schools can learn more from kindergarten than kindergartners can learn from school? Uh, he, Andreas. Um, My apologies. It's okay. I'll, I'll tell him that. Andreas Schleicher, yeah, the OECD. So the OECD is the sort of what the economist refers to as the club of mostly rich countries. It's like the most developed countries in the world. And it's an organization where they share data and, and ideas and it's sort of a forum for talking. And they're the ones who really study education across the world in the most in-depth way. And they, they're the ones that rank which countries do better at, at school than others. And he said, you know, kids can learn, people, education can learn more from kindergarten than kindergarten can learn from education. And what he meant was that when you think of a kid in kindergarten, and I had a son who was in ki virtual kindergarten for the first year, um, and that really sucked. When you think about kindergarten, what is kindergarten? You don't, kid doesn't roll into kindergarten and they're given a bunch of textbooks 
and they're told, all right, day one, one plus one equals two. You know, you got to write this essay. You got to get up and give a report. Kindergarten is based around the principle of play-based learning. You're put in a room in a group. There's all sorts of things in this room. There's toys, there's books, there's letters, there's teachers and educational assistants whose job it is to sort of help you. There's going to be times when we're going to do stories and there's going to be times when they're not, but you don't have to sit. You know, there's some rules like you don't hit people and this is when you eat and whatever, but here's how you clean up. Um, but you're kind of free in a kindergarten to explore, to build with the blocks, to learn how to paint, to, to pick up a story and read. And that exploration is the sort of building block intellectually of education for the rest of your life, right? Kindergarten is one of the most important things uh, a society can do to have an educated public and, and sort of a better outcome later in life in an education system. There's tons of information out there about this. And the earlier and the more you can invest in early childhood education in pre-K or junior kindergarten, as we call it here in Canada, um, you know, in kindergarten, even in preschools, like earlier than that, daycares, you know, the better outcome you're going to have. And what he's saying is this is a better model for what a high school education should be in 2022 than anything digital or anything sort of streamed online. That the skills we need in this 21st century, at least now we're, you know, three decades into it, are increasingly the skills that a kindergartner learns in their classroom. You need to be creative. You need to be open to exploration. You need to be flexible and learn shifting social mores in a world that you're just kind of coming to understand. As we're being challenged by new technologies, you know, new changes in societal norms, all sorts of crazy politics and things around the world, thinking in many ways, like a kindergartner, being very creative is going to be the most valuable life skill you can have. It, it's all those, those 21st century skills that are, you know, buzzwords in corporate management circles, right? Uh, resilience, creativity, innovation. That's what a kindergartner does with a bunch of Legos every single day. Uh, and we treat it as this kind of nice to have. We'll do like corporate retreats where it's like, okay, now we're going to spend an afternoon building Lego with this guy from, you know, Lego to go corporation. Um, but it's something we should actually be integrating into junior high, high school, like around that mode of thinking that allows people to have more agency in the way that they think and less of a binary retention of facts and regurgitation. The American education system famously in the world of education systems, generally ranks pretty middle to low. Like pretty much every European country, North American country, Asian country ranks higher in terms of, you know, K to 12 education. And the most important categories too, like they're high up in reading, I want to say, but- Reading, in math, the, uh, yeah. The, the problem solving categories, the math and sciences, yeah. it's, it's pathetic considering how much money we spend on the education system. Yeah, and, and so much political, you know, effort and will and you know texas is like the it, texas is the battlefield of, of american education of, of what happens and not even just talking about the political you know religious stuff but like everything and and so much of it is based the american education system is based on testing right the sats the sats the sats the sats the sats the sats standardized testing standardized testing whereas finland one of the greatest countries in the world for education tiny little country not that many resources has no testing and no standardized testing you know, we don't have standardized, we have some standardized testing here in Canada, but like when I would talk to American friends, they'd be like, oh my God, what did you have to do to get into university in Canada? I'm like, I, I don't know. I submitted my marks to three schools. One of them picked them. I decided to go there because 
it was a cooler city than the other ones and it was nearer to skiing. And like, what did you do? Like I studied for nine years for the SATs. And then I learned how to like be a majorette in a drum circle. Cause some consultant told me that that's what I needed to do or whatever. I don't know. So again, it's, 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 it's that digital binary thinking pervading something like education is, um, is again, points that, that, that bigger fault in the thinking that it wasn't just the technology and it wasn't just the way that certain schools or teachers implemented the technology. It was this philosophy that viewed education as the sum of facts or something that could be quantified very easily when it can't. Yeah. So uh, to, to uh, let you know a little bit more about me, you and I both have a, a couple of younger kids. I think one of your kids is maybe a little bit older than mine. Mine are eight, nine and, and three. Yeah. Okay. Nine and three. So you have one older, one younger. I'm at eight and six right now. So when the pandemic started, we, we lucked out because old boat. yes, very similar boats. But when the pandemic started, both my kids were still in Montessori school. And so uh, we're able to keep them in Montessori school, Montessori. which is uh, very helpful because of uh, what you were just, just describing with what kindergartens do in general. And I guess what Finland. Uh, also does throughout its school system. And that's foster an interest in learning more where it's less subject intensive and making sure everybody's sitting there listening to you rattle off rules related to whatever the subject is and finding things that interest each individual kid and helping yeah. them to learn and better understand the concepts behind whatever it is that they decided to pick up themselves. And that's, been one of the more frustrating adjustments for me now with both of them being in public school as of this year is that even in first grade has completely gone away now. And when we get to third grade, you are talking more about the standardized testing. And because there is the, uh, the star test here in Texas, I don't know what they call it nationally. And unfortunately school districts, a lot of the money that they get statewide and federally has to do with the overall performance on these tests. And so at that point you are catering to, I hate to refer to it as such, but it's you and me talking right now. I'm not saying this to anyone stupid kid's face, but you're having to appeal to the lowest common denominator when you do something like that versus well, you're, you're appealing to the test. You are, you know, the, the, the a school like that, I'm not saying that particular school, but like, the difference of teaching people so they can pass a certain test and retain the certain information they need to pass a test, which is, that's all a test is, right? A test is like memorizing certain information that you then regurgitate in a particular setting. Like, how is that any different from kids in the hills of Afghanistan sitting there memorizing the Quran at some madras, you know, in, in, in a tiny village? Like there is, you know, there's no critical thinking involved. It's not an exploration of ideas that gets people excited. And I think you see that when people are excited about something, when, when children are interested in a subject, you know, they will remember all the relevant information. Go ask a six-year-old who's interested in dinosaurs about dinosaurs. I mean, they, they know as much as any paleontologist that's sort of out there, right? Because they're interested and they're curious and they were allowed to explore that. And, you know, the Montessori system is the perfect example of an educational system that was designed by Maria Montessori, I think her name was, mm -hmm. to, you know, be built around that human curiosity and human ingenuity. And as much as one can try to be curious 
and have that sort of ingenuity in an online world um, by doing things on the computer all day, there are serious limits to that. There's limits to the type of information, the quality of information you can get online. There's also limits to the type of conversations you can have when you're not with people or when your body is removed from a physical place. You know, it's a very different thing to build Minecraft blocks than it is to build Legos because Lego is involving all your senses. And it um, doesn't mean that Minecraft is bad, but the Lego will do more for a child's brain because the child's brain's connecting to their body. Chapter three is Wednesday. Wednesday is Commerce Day. Uh, David, I still have an issue uh, when I go to the grocery store of seeing people who have been hired by other people to do their grocery shopping. Maybe I'm just a little bit too anal retentive when it comes to the uh, avocados that I am picking out at the grocery store, but I do not trust another human being to buy the foods that I plan on buying myself. However, there are a lot of people who uh, who don't feel the same way that I do, and there are a lot of people who uh, really don't go to any store anymore if they don't have to, to buy whatever it is. Food, clothing, uh, books on the internet, which I guess I'm guilty of from time to time. But for my money, I am all about going to the physical store to hold that potential copy of a book that I'm going to purchase or to go try on an article of clothing that I want to buy. And yes, to go to the grocery store as well. But we saw a major shift in the pandemic of people who may no longer go back to the in-store bit. What was the original promise of e-commerce? Because I was a little bit surprised to learn what that was versus what it has become in this era of Amazon. Well, the original promise of e-commerce, you know, pre-Amazon was that every store, everywhere, you know, your local bookstore, whatever, would be able to sell locally, but they'd also be able to sell to anyone who wanted. And, 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 you know, there were places that did it Zingerman's deli in, in, um, in, you know, Michigan and, uh, you know, think about companies like Patagonia or whatever. I mean, you know, you're talking the catalog business, right? You're talking Sears. Um, e-commerce was just sort of a digital version of that. What it evolved into was a world of monopolies and, um, the idea that if you want to buy a book, or pretty much any other physical product, you just had to go to one place and it would have the lowest possible price. So there would be no reason to go to any other place. And that was Amazon, right? Um, and in other categories, there might've been sort of other places. Uh, and, and you know, that really showed up at the early in the pandemic when, you know, stores were closed, you couldn't go to buy anything anywhere. Um, and everything you had to do was sort of click and collect or click and had delivered. And the options were few and far between. You would drive through cities or walk through cities like Austin or Toronto, and you'd all of a sudden see these beloved restaurants and stores closing, going out of business. And and you very quickly saw this future where it's like Amazon is the only place where you could go. It's like the movie Demolition Man, where Taco Bell is the only restaurant left over after the fast food wars, mm -hmm. right? It's a very sort of bleak future. Now, there's a lot of people who are like, hey, I don't care. I don't care. You know, as long as I get my avocados delivered and they're six cents cheaper than anyone else, whatever. And, and fine, there's always going to be that, but you know, two things. One is like, don't eat guacamole at that person's house. It's going to taste like ass. <laughs> two, <laughs> don't feel the avocado, <laughs> you know, two, that there is far more to the experience of purchasing something in a store than the product or price, right? You talk about going to a bookstore and holding a book. There is no 
logical reason whatsoever for you, Trey, to go to a bookstore and pick up a book. An avocado, 100%. You go to a Holden avocado, you squeeze it, you know exactly what that avocado is going to taste like. Maybe it'll have a bit of that brown crap in it, but you know, you, you know from the feel, from the haptic senses in your body and your memory and all your experience of eating guacamole, what that avocado is going to feel like and, and, and taste like. But the other thing is like, you go to the grocery store, you go to a bookstore, you might bump into someone you know. It might make you feel better about your day. It's a place to go as someone who works from home where you're going to feel in this social environment. You're going to see new things, other products, other books there. You're going to learn new things. You're going to get an experience. You're going to feel part of a community, right? Not just a physical community, but say an intellectual community if you're at a great bookstore in Austin. All of those things have value. And that's why, despite all these predictions that e-commerce at the beginning of the pandemic was surging and it was sort of this one-way street and we would never go back, that this was the new normal, that as soon as stores reopened, there was this return to them. like grocery stores are packed, that the grocery delivery business grew a bit, but not by a huge amount. And many of those gains have been wiped out by people just going back to stores. Amazon's e-commerce sales are down like, I don't know, 40% or something in the past year. Shopify's stock is, 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 is down. Pretty much every e-commerce division is really sliding. And you go to stores and, and people are, are shopping in them. Why is that? Because we obviously see some value in that. Whether it's the ripeness of the avocado or the people you bump into there or the place to go, or maybe the fact that it's just part of the way we as humans want to interact. Now that said, like there are things that I will order online, right? My microwave a few weeks ago, just straight up stopped working. Went down in the morning. Wife's like, what the hell's with the microwave? Nothing, 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 nothing. Hmm. Go on YouTube, my favorite place. Always some guy in Texas. Hey, this is Bob from Lubbock. Uh, you know, I got a GL space maker, uh, XL one. Now what you want to do is open up the screw here. Now this is a little fuse here. You can buy this thing. Fine, go online, find it from some company. Order this fuse for 25 bucks. It arrives a week later. Do what Bob says. Pop the fuse in. Microwave works. I feel like God, right? Incredible. You know, certain things like that. But like, I'm going out to get those avocados and I am touching every avocado. And I don't care what someone says in the store about touching the food. I'm touching those avocados. That's right. And by the way, yes, you want the soft avocado for the avocado you're eating that night, but you need the super firm avocado for the one that you're going to be eating three or four days later, David. Levels of avocados, tiers of avocados. You know, interestingly, in talking about commerce, you uh, you bring forth a, a really good example of e-commerce working like it was originally intended to while also helping the analog world as well. And I love that you brought up bookshop.org because bookshop.org is the website that I will link uh, all the books for the authors that I speak with through uh, in the descriptions of the podcast episodes. And I was familiar with this model and how it helps independent bookstores. But for people who haven't heard of bookshop.org before, what exactly is it? Well, bookshop.org is an independent booksellers um, e-commerce web solution, right? Web solution. Wow. Welcome to 1991. <laughs> um, it's, it's basically an e-commerce portal for independent bookstores to sell their books online. And, uh, this guy, Andy Hunter, who owned a number of different sort of literary publishing house, um, you know, publishing industry websites, uh, saw, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago that there was a space 
in the world of independent book selling that would allow independent bookstores to sell online that wasn't Amazon, right? Amazon's been around since what, 298 or something like that. Like mm -hmm. it's, there's nothing new about Amazon and there's, there's nothing super special that they do except size. They were just the first to do it. And it's hard because the independent bookstore movement has grown tremendously. I wrote about it in my last book, you know, you're talking, it was down to a low of like, I don't know, a thousand independent bookstores in the United States back in 2009. And now over the past decade, there's been, you know, a, a tremendous resurgence of them. There's, you know, probably a thousand more, if not more of them in different cities and they're growing. But for each one of those to sell books online, it's like, they got to set up their own e-commerce website. They got to have someone in the back, like packaging books and shipping them off. So what Bookshop is, it's a portal. It's like, hey, we have all the books here. We have direct contacts with the publisher's distribution. You want to order a copy of David's book? Just click on this link. You'll do it. It's going to cost the same as it costs anywhere else. Um, but what each independent bookstore can do, whether it's Type Books here in Toronto or you know a great bookstore there in Austin, Texas, and shout one out because I can't really think of one right now. That would be Book People. Book People, the best people. Um, so Book People sets up a website, you know, through someone orders through the book people website um, and it goes through bookshop bookshop has their people in the warehouse, fulfill it, package it, send it out to the person and they give book people their cut of the sale. So it's a plug and play solution that allows independent businesses and brick and mortar businesses to retain their customers, serve them, but focus on doing what they actually do uh, versus having to do their own thing. And it allows them to compete with Amazon on a very even footing. And it's been very successful. It launched right before the pandemic, like just perfect timing. Um, but it's been great and it's revolutionized an industry that um, previously, you know, it it was assumed that there would be no alternative to Amazon. Chapter four is Thursday and Thursday is the city. So there have uh, been visions of what smart cities would become going back decades. I mean, you can go back to uh, books from the early part of the last century that uh, were predicting what the future would be. One of my all-time favorites is Brave New World. And then plenty of radio and TV shows and movies since then that predict what the future would look like. With the technology itself, I feel like this is another example where technology can help make the analog experience a little bit better. You think about being able to make a reservation for a restaurant on your phone, hailing a ride through Uber or Lyft, something like that, figuring out what to do, maneuvering traffic to get to point A to point B. Uh, parking maybe becomes a little bit easier when you are parking in the downtown of a city. But ultimately, those are all things that help you get to the point where you're no longer having to stare at that piece of technology because you are uh, enjoying the, uh, the company that you keep or, or perhaps the show that's in front of your face. Totally. I think that the thing about the city and the reason I wrote about it was because early on in the pandemic, you know, anyone who had the money um, was like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm out of New York. I'm out of, you know, Boston. I'm out of the down. Like, I don't need to be here for work. We're going to move to the country. And people were saying the city's done. The city's dead. If we don't need downtowns, we don't need cities, which, you know, they said the 1950s with the rise of the suburb. Um, and it just didn't come to pass. Like it was a ridiculous thing. And so, you know, then you look at, well, what are people saying the future of the city is? And in Toronto, we had a project that died at the very beginning of the pandemic, and it was called Sidewalk Toronto. And Sidewalk Labs, which was the division of Google or Alphabet or whatever the heck they're called, uh, um, was 
you know, given this kind of parcel of very valuable undeveloped industrial waterfront land in Toronto. And Toronto is some of the most expensive real estate in the world. And Google was going to develop this sort of laboratory of a new city living. And it would be these, you know, holistic, um, sustainable buildings, but everyone thing would be interconnected by big data and sensors and sensors would tell when the garbage can was full and the garbage can would be picked up by a robot or blah, 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 blah. It was like this wonderful dystopian surveillance state that Google was proposing. And yet, what did we see the biggest improvement of in cities, cities like Toronto, right? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Like very quickly on in, in the pandemic, the city was like, oh crap, people need, can now, eat, you know, we need people to eat go to restaurants, the restaurants don't go bankrupt, but we can't have them eat inside. So we need them to be able to eat outside, but we don't have enough space on their patios because of the licensing everything. Why don't we just take these parking spots that are on every street and make restaurant patios in them? And if you go to a city like New York, I mean, they went to town and Paris and you know all these other cities. Toronto did kind of like half-ass job as we always do. But we had these incredible sidewalk patios that are still a thing. Cities are like, oh my God, people need to get outside and exercise, but we can't have them congregating in, in too small a space. So let's close down some roads and they can bike and rollerblade and, you know, run there um, on Sundays and Saturdays. Like let's, we can do that. Wow. This is an incredible thing. And all it required was some barriers and maybe some police to sort of, you know, help direct traffic and guard it. And it was this incredible thing. And none of that required fancy technology or embedded sensors. It was again, a very analog solution that vastly improved the life and the quality of living of the people living in those cities. I would far rather have restaurant patios and parking spaces than I would having sensor enhanced parking spaces that tells me when a parking spot's available. I mean, mm. I can drive around the block, but I want to be able to sit at a patio outside because that's what being in a city is about. Chapter five, it uh, has to deal with city life and that is culture which happens on friday in your book it's well established at this point you and i have talked a little bit about this uh, during this conversation today that everything from museums books festivals conferences concerts stand-up live sports and yes even book tours the digital version paled in comparison to the real thing over the last couple of years david why are shared live experiences not just enjoyable but necessary for us as humans look you live in austin right? Mm -hmm. What is Austin's main industry? I mean, I suppose now it's Dell and tech companies. Uh, um, the, well, it's becoming stand-up comedy too, thankfully. But it's, it's well, that's live, it, right? It's what the live is music like, capital of the world. You know, how did Towns Van Zandt and Willie Nelson and, and Bonnie Ray put that goddamn beautiful city on the map, right? It's like, this is the capital, it's a government town, but this is this is the place where you go to experience a thing and that thing is culture it's music it's storytelling in austin it's broadway and theater and art in new york city it's it's you know music in london and paris johannesburg whatever you want to do like that's that that thing that irreplaceable desirable thing has a currency and a force all its own and it makes cities like austin and cities like nashville and cities like new york what they are it builds the industry around that and yet it's that that gathering of people that's that essential thing listen we've been trying to take culture and capture it and distribute it remotely with great success for hundreds of years right books took you know the lectures of, of and, and storytelling and they condensed them into a thing that you can make portable so you didn't have to have um 
you know, Homer telling you the Odyssey, you could just read it. Um, you know, we recorded music on wax cylinders and, and, and flat pieces of plastic. And you could all of a sudden have Willie Nelson singing to you, uh, even if you weren't in Austin or town Van Zant singing to you, even though he's not alive anymore. Um, we've, we've had digital streaming and TV concerts and, and, you know, Swan Lake on the television since the first Soviet Union leader was ousted. We've had all these things, but they've never been a replacement for the real thing. And I think there was this notion that, oh, well, this is the future. Now we can, we can do even more of this. And, you know, oh, with TikTok and, you know, streaming and Periscope and whatever, like the future of entertainment is going to be on the screen and more and more of it will be there. And we don't need live music and we don't need shows and we don't need stand up. And the truth is that nothing even comes close to replacing that, that yeah, you could sit at home and stream whatever the heck you want. You know, you know, you'll you'll be maybe less bored. You might be entertained, but you're not going to come close to having that live experience. A year ago, I went to see the stand-up show of a friend of mine, Tamara. She's a fellow mom at the school. Um, and I was like, oh, you're a comedian. Wow, that's cool. And um, she invited us to her showcase that she did in Toronto. And it went and it was her and like, I don't know, six other comedians. It was the first cultural event that I'd been to since the pandemic. You know, we had to show our vaccine passports and all that jazz. And I laughed so hard. Like I laughed harder than I had laughed in two and a half years. My stomach hurt the next day. Now, partly that's because of a lack of core strength. That's a whole <laughs> other issue that we have to address. But it was even just the, the mediocre comedians who were just kind of trying out a bit or just starting out and weren't even that funny. I was laughing at. It was, it was everything that was in that moment. It was the drinks. It was the setting. It was being with other people. It was hearing their laughter. It was feeling them shake as the, you know, they were, they were laughing at a particularly hilarious bit that a guy did about cats, the musical and how absurd it is. Like it just, it's the type of thing that I could have watched that entire special filmed on my screen and it wouldn't have been 20% as fun. So there's just something about that being there. And again, it's part of that embodied experience. We need, you know, collective experiences. We need to be there together in the tribe with the other cavemen, listening to someone telling a story in front of the fire. That's baked into who we are. It's baked into our DNA. Um, uh, and there's no replacement for that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the need to uh, to be with one another to experience things together because uh, a subtopic within Chapter 6, uh, which is Saturday conversation, has to do with the amount of loneliness that exists in this world and how there aren't enough people who are having conversations with others. And as a result, they're not just lonely, they're also depressed. And that led to something that I had not ever heard of before that I absolute lo absolutely love as a therapy for somebody who is maybe down and out in part because they really don't have anybody to turn to. What is social prescribing? Yeah, um, I'm glad you you brought that up um, because I think it's a really important and novel thing and it kind of encapsulates everything that I was hoping to talk about in this part of the book. Social prescribing, which was invented, if you want to call it that, um, in the UK about 20 years ago by uh, some practitioners and, and, and really rolled out across the National Health Service, which is their national health service, <laughs> um, is what it sounds like, right? The problem was that, you know, there has been this growing epidemic of loneliness and isolation in the world, uh, initially the sort of developed world, and now we're seeing the developing world. 
And it's cited by the CDC and the World Health Organization and others as the leading cause of global health concerns uh, in the world. Uh, you know, if someone is lonely or isolated, uh, they're at a higher risk of premature death from pretty much every possible cause, addiction and depression and suicide, but also things like accidents or, you know, diabetes or cancer, or heart disease, like it, loneliness affects the body. It is, it is truly deadly. You can treat symptoms of it. You can treat diabetes. You can treat heart disease. You can give people uh, antidepressants for depression, but it doesn't get to the root cause. And the root cause, uh, many of these doctors were noticing in the UK was this notion of loneliness. So what if, what if you prescribed people who were isolated and alone socializing? What if you prescribed them conversations with other human beings, not in a one-on-one -on -one setting like therapy, but actually in creating normal everyday and encouraging sort of normal everyday social situations uh, where people would be encouraged and, and maybe, you know, feel the need to talk to other people and build relationships, trust, friendships, perhaps that would tackle their loneliness directly. And that would in turn improve their other health outcomes if their other mental health outcomes or social outcomes, right? Because this is everything from people who had, you know, health issues to social issues, to financial issues, to issues around um, family violence, let's say. And so what it does is, you know, someone will go into a doctor, they're presenting with a problem. The doctor says, I think this could, person could actually benefit from social prescribing. They're prescribed to a social prescribing worker, which is like a social worker. And that person will say, hey, we have, you know, these programs, do you have any interests or whatever? And the individual will say, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm into this. And so, oh, you know what? You might want to try our gardening group. It meets every Tuesday. You know, they just do gardening. There's no pressure. You just show up and help do gardening. People go and they'll rake beds and work compost and till soil and plant things. And in the process of doing it, they're standing next to five other people and inevitably they'll start chatting. And over the course of weeks, that sense of loneliness, that veneer, that armor that they build up around themselves to protect themselves in some way from other humans will, will fall by the wayside. And I spoke to a few of these people and they said that the difference in their life was tremendous. It wasn't, didn't happen overnight, but over time, having those conversations made them realize that they were a valued human in this world, that they weren't ignored, that their problems were genuine, that people actually cared about them and they should care about other people, which is something that in this world, I think we do not have enough of. That's the root of many, many problems, whether you want to call them problems of politics or problems of health or problems of substance. And it's something that digital technology or something like social media is terrible at helping, right? Social media is, you know, by virtue trying to separate us. Um, it, you know, spend more time by yourself at home alone. It'll give you the veneer of socializing and the veneer of communicating, but it doesn't give you anything that approaches a sense of togetherness or belonging. Yeah, it allows an anonymity to say really ugly things to one another versus stopping for a second. It is that an asshole machine too. Let's not get ourselves. It's a total it asshole machine. My one of my friends put it, puts it perfectly. He says it's a digital bathroom wall, where you can just scribble whatever you want to on that wall and uh, taking that line. That's going to be any consequences. Please do. Yeah. yeah. All right. What are you going to do? Yeah. Clean so, the wall. In this have, bus station in Tampa. Some have tried. Just uh, don't stick your eye into that hole. You never know uh, what you're going to see or <laughs> what's going to come through the other side. <laughs>
The final chapter, chapter seven, Sunday, fittingly, is the soul. I don't know about for you, David, but is there a more obvious of these seven different areas that needs to be as analog as possible as when we're talking about the soul? And I realize that there were online church services when people weren't allowed to go to church. And as much as it bothers me, there are apps that help you meditate hope everybody understands the irony there, but yes, you need to figure out a way to remove yourself from these technologies when you are putting the proper time that is required into making sure that your soul is as healthy as possible. Well, and, and I talk about it in this body and soul, right? So it wasn't just the, the religion or spirituality, if we want to call it that, but it was also, it, what were the things that we did to sort of nourish us? What were the things that after work and school and all these things we, we did to actually reconnect us and make us feel better. Right. And, and so as, you know, on the religious front or the spiritual front, it's, it's meditation apps, it's virtual church, synagogue, mosque on the body front. It's like, Hey, you could log online and do any sort of workout you want on your screen, you know, buy a Peloton bike. It'll be connected to the best trainers in, in New York city. Let's go Trey. Come on, pump those legs. Um, and people did it. They were sitting there pumping their legs in their basements, but did that revitalize them in any way? Did it give them a sense of a greater sense of sort of meaning in a way that's in the world. I mean, for me, what were the things that that gave me that nourishment that I needed um, and still today do? Like when I have a tough day or a long day or it's the weekend or a vacation, like what are the things that I go to that give me that greater sense, right? It's, it's going outside, it's going for a walk, it's going swimming, it's going surfing, it's going paddleboarding. I told you you said you're in Austin at the beginning of our conversation before we recorded. I said, oh, my God, my favorite place in Austin is Barton Springs. Mm-hmm. Barton Springs, for those of you who don't have the pleasure, is a huge natural pool that's built off a tributary of the Colorado River in, right in Austin. It's built by the National Park Service. I think you can go in for $2 or something like that. You just sit there in the sun and swim all day, and it's incredible. It's like this restorative, wonderful place, and it's just a big old body of water right those are the things that we we can't digitize and yeah that you can buy like a virtual trainer and do virtual swimming you could ride your road bike my dad's a big road biker austin big road bike city due to its fallen sun my dad's a big road biker he bought like a vr enabled road bike thing which like displays his little avatar and he pumps his legs and he could ride through you know stages of the tour de france but like nothing beats him getting out on the road once the snow thaws here and hitting the hills and hitting the streets and like feeling the wind rush around your body and the the the, the just pure childlike joy of a bike riding down the hill nothing's better than that and i think on the spiritual front it's the same thing like i'm jewish i could go and read every book of the bible of the torah and study talmud all i wanted in my house but the tradition is not about that. It's not about knowing the Bible back and forth. It's about being in a congregation with other people and singing songs that maybe you don't even know the words to the songs. I don't because they're in Hebrew and I, I don't speak Hebrew, but I know the tune of the song. And it's the, the, the vibration of that, that cosmic vibration that I feel when I'm in synagogue twice a year, three times, maybe if I'm lucky. When I do that, that actually gives me a sense of like, oh, I'm part of something greater. I'm part of a people. I'm part of a tradition. I'm part of, call it some higher thing. It's it's not about God for me. It's about 
It's about, again, being human. And part of being human is searching for that bigger thing, whether it's nature, whether it's a spirituality, whether it's religion, whether it's a part of community. And you can't get that from a screen. You can simulate it. You can dip your toe in it. You can get a direction in it, but you, you know, no one's coming out of that meditation app with their life changed. Yeah. I mean, we, as humans, if we're doing it right, we should always find ourselves in awe at various Mm. points. And obviously it's easier for kids to, uh, to be odd because they haven't been around as long and the world is, uh, is, is more awe inspiring, I guess, when you're really, when you're younger, but that doesn't mean it, it should stop inspiring awe. I mean, awe is one of those things that's just now being, uh, being looked at as an emotive state, which for a long time, it was not labeled as such. And I love that. And, and here's the thing about awe. You can experience a version of awe digitally, I guess, but it's extremely superficial. What it is, it's some stupid video that blows your mind for a few seconds that you're going to f- forget about 15 minutes later versus experiencing something in the real world. And it could be surfing out on a uh, freezing lake, like what you described in this book. I'm somebody the waves who likes- are pumping out here now. So yeah. Yeah. And I'm somebody who likes playing sand volleyball. I mean, that's, that's kind of my respite. That's my, uh, my me time that I always leave feeling thankful and refreshed, even if I played like absolute crap that day, but we should all have those things where we are able to just put the phone down to not pay attention to whatever's going on on a television screen and just be in the present and enjoy that moment and be blown away by the moment from time to time too. And you said something at the beginning of that, um, uh, you know, beautiful statement, which, which really stuck with me and sticks out and explains the whole thing, which is like, you're going to strap, you know, watch some video on some screen or maybe in your Oculus headset and the metaverse or whatever that nobody's going to. And like, you're going to forget it after 10 minutes. Like think back to that two years or however long it was, just the entirety of your life in sort of the world of digital. And, and, and can you actually remember, like, is there, do you have a lasting memory of anything from that time? Do do, do you have a lasting memory of something that was said or done, you know, a, a particularly great tweet you did on social media, like of a fabulous YouTube video that changed your life? Um, you know, do, do you have these memories of these experiences playing video games not really. It's all just kind of flat. It's good. Still like, okay, just another sort of thing on the screen. It's flat, just like this, right? You know, I can remember conversations I had with people face-to-face from 20 years ago. I can remember experiences from every single vacation and trip I took in, in my life, pretty much. I can remember meals I ate, you know, half a life ago or more. Um, I remember these things because they happen in the real world and they gave me that sense of being in the world. And that is the goal of human existence, right? That's that greater sort of meaning. And so why would we settle for something that's less than that? Why would we settle for something that, that's a facsimile or a simulation? Yep. All right. I have one final question, but to put a cherry on top of the uh, subject of soul, there was uh, there were a couple of lines that you wrote near the end of this chapter that are, is maybe my favorite uh, favorite two sentences in this book. Each time we choose the Zoom church service over the real one or the Peloton bike over a ride outside, 
We're opting for the fast food equivalent of life. Quicker, easier, and more convenient, but ultimately unfulfilling for both our bodies and our souls. Very well put there. All right, last question now, David, because in the conclusion, you do not mince words when you are discussing the metaverse, the Mark Zuckerberg Facebook creation that is trying to turn, I guess, every hour of our existence virtual. What do you think about the metaverse? Nothing. I don't think about it at all. Hmm. You know, it's it's a parlor trick. It's um, it's the notion that after all we lived through the past couple of years, what we need to do is move the screens closer to our face. In fact, strap them onto our face and make this sort of a semi-permanent state of reality. Um, and that will be an improvement for all the areas of our life. I just, it's ridiculous. I mean, there was a story the other day how it's, you know, their, for, their forecast for the number of people using it are just so low. People want reviews from journalists who, you know, have spent time in the metaverse and, and like, it's just empty. It's like second life now. It's just this, this sad, you know, Potemkin village that Zuckerberg built and has plowed his fortune into. Um, and the rest of us are out there biking, hiking, eating at restaurants, going to Barton Springs and swimming, and then going to walk to Johnny Black's to get some brisket, you know, laughing, meeting friends. Like, how are we going to improve on that? You can improve on it by making that world better. You can improve on it by, you know, standing up to fight for climate change and, and the rights of human beings who, who don't have those rights and try to make schools better and safer and, and our cities more connected and easier to bike around and do the things that we know improve our life and make our life better. Um, we're not going to run from that world. We're not going to run from reality and hide in some high tech simulation. That's like, I don't know, you know, take a bunch of mushrooms, Mark. I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> that's my prescription for Mark Zuckerberg. He needs social prescribing. He's, he's, he's clearly a very lonely individual. Um, and if this is his solution for the future of the world and vision of it, like it's, I just find it sad. Um, so will there be applications for it? Will people find interesting, fun, cool things to do in it? I'm sure. And, and, and maybe it will have some bigger effect, but I just, I don't see it and I don't pay it much attention. Uh, for the sake of the future of, uh, not just us, but our kids, I, I hope that doesn't take hold. I hope it uh, remains a very niche deal because, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg regularly talks about getting out and surfing and engaging in jujitsu and doing yeah. all sorts of other things that, that aren't virtual at all. So he clearly understands the value of that, too. Exactly. It's it's this it's this paradox. It's that same thing of Steve kids never gave his kids an iPad. Steve Jobs never gave his yeah. kids an iPad. You know, yeah. they all sent their people to Montessori schools and Waldorf schools. Right. Um, you know, it's it's Zuckerberg's trying to sell something. And we shouldn't confuse salesmanship about the future for some sort of Nostradamus level prediction of it that we're all bound to follow. Um, you know, just because someone's a genius like him or Elon Musk doesn't mean that we're beholden to their future, or that any future that they predict is the one that's going to arrive. He is David Sachs. The new book is an excellent one. It's called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. David, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this book. No, Trey, thank you. This was a pleasure.
Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.